Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Erna Magnisdottir from the University of Iceland on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you received your undergrad degree in biochemistry from the University of Iceland in 1999. After working at Decode Genetics for two years, you joined a doctoral program in biological sciences at Columbia University in New York City. You received the doctorate in 2007 and then joined the group of Azim Surani at the Gordon Institute at Cambridge University for your postdoc. You then joined the Biomedical Center at the University of Iceland in 2012 and are still there today as Associate Professor for Biomedical Sciences and Anatomy. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Right, yeah, that's actually a long story, but I guess also kind of simple, but it's actually really interesting because... Um, Uh, and I like to tell this uh, story and my mom likes to tell this story because like, I mean, I was a curious kid and I loved learning about how the world works and everything. And, and uh, for example, like when I was babysitting my brother for like every day for a whole winter, when I was um, like nine, I received an award from my parents. It was like an encyclopedia about how the world works. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, the luckiest person in the world just learning how the world works right but I think it was actually so interesting there was a moment that actually impacted my thinking when I was eight years old I was uh, living in the countryside in Iceland and I had to go to the doctor and uh, the doctor had to um, look at a urine sample from me in the microscope and he invited me to look in the scope and I was so mind blown <laughs> and I just remember like, you know, bouncing next to my mom, walking home, like, mom, mom, what can I do? What can I do uh, to look at bugs in a microscope when I become um, an adult? And uh, and she actually told me, well, you can become a hospital laboratory technician, which was like kind of a standard uh, female, like science profession back then. So I it was kind of like a joke in the family after that, that every time I was asked, what I was going to do when I grew up. I, I told them I would become a laboratory technician when, when everyone else would, like had kind of more standard answers. So, so I was always like interested in the sciences. Like I, like in school, I liked languages and the sciences, but I never like, and I, I thought biology was like a bit messy and it didn't fit into this like logic of like physics. And so I didn't actually give it like a, like a mental chance until I was about 16. And it's so interesting how just some such insignificant moments can affect you. Because I just remember watching a documentary um, on TV and there was, uh, and it was this nature documentary and there was this uh, biologist explaining about the complexity of living things. And, and he was like, well, you know, It's like uh, biology is so complicated. You can't reduce it to like simple equations and anything like that. It's like, it's the most complex thing that you can even think about. And that makes it so interesting to study. And something just went off in my head and I decided, I, and it gave me like a completely different um, 
kind of perspective. And I think it's so interesting just watching a documentary on TV. And that decided at that moment, I decided to give it a chance. And I realized I, I really loved it. And uh, and then we had a really good biology um, um, teachers in like, I guess, like in uh, college, junior college, like a gymnasium in German. And we had this amazing um, American t- textbook called Understanding Biology. I was like, had re- all these like beautiful pictures and I was just sad after that. And and so, uh, and it was, there was this like, I was like 18 years old and I was just going to become a biochemist and <laughs> and I haven't looked back ever since. But it, it's always just so interesting how these kind of little moments can direct you uh, yeah, in your life. That's, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So let's come to your science. Um, this centers around how speci- how sequence-specific transcription factors interact with the genetic sequence to coordinate different outputs and cell lineage choices, choices and differentiation. In more detail, one area of interest of yours is the transcription factor or transcription repressor BLIMP1. And the first publication about this protein with a name on it is from 2006. <laughs> At least that's what I found. <laughs> before, yeah, we dive into, yeah. before we dive into the details of, of your work, could you maybe give a short yeah. introduction to BLIMP1? Yeah, so BLIMP1 is um, actually, yeah, I've been working on it now for like 20 years, uh, starting uh, in a rotation with Catherine Colema, Colombia. And she uh, uh, actually discovered it just as an activity uh, in, uh, in the 80s in uh, B cells. There was They found an activity that repressed CMEC. And, uh, and so basically, it's always been viewed as a transcriptional repressor, and it was originally identified then as a repressor of CMIC before they had a name for it. And then uh, some of the first work in human was on repressing like interferon um, uh, induction uh, in human, uh, I believe, fibroblasts by Tom Maniaris. And then Catherine, uh, uh, no, actually, like there was um, a paper by um, Mark Davis's group that showed that it actually, if you overexpress it in B cells, they turn into plasma cells. So for a long time, uh, people focused on studying it in plasma, in plasma cells and B cells where it's sufficient to drive this kind of binary fate. So it represses, uh, because you go from a B cell to a plasma cell. And so when you switch on blimp one, you repress the previous fate and you drive the cells to become antibody secreting plasma cells. Uh, and it's actually quite interesting because when we uh, look at, uh, when we do like reporter assays for blimp one, it's very hard, but I haven't, I actually have never seen a reporter assay where it activates gene transcription. So we've always talked about it as a repressor, uh, but we've always had an open mind that it could also activate uh, genes because it doesn't actually have any intrinsic activity on its own. So it binds to a very specific sequence in, in DNA, and then it's like a platform, like a lot of transcription factors. Then it, it brings in co-repressors. And um, um, and so we've always uh, uh, kind of wondered whether it could also activate transcription, but we it's so much harder somehow to show it directly. But then um, uh, Meinrad Buslinger's group did a very thorough analysis in uh, mouse plasma cells and plasma blasts a few years ago, where they showed that they weren't able to show it, or I, I don't know if they tried, but they showed that it 
can also associate with co-activators and uh, it can um, activate genes in plasma cells. So, so this is kind of what my spiel when I talk to my students is like, yeah, yeah, I know everywhere it says that it's a repressor, but it probably can activate transcription as well. But it's really just this little switch where, you know, it comes in, brings other activities in with it and uh, represses or sometimes activates its genes. And then now we know that um, it plays a role in so many different cell types. So uh, since uh, since kind of the uh, the B cell days, uh, like we like for example discovered. So Catherine, before I joined her lab, they had discovered that it uh, is important for the activation of macrophages. And now, actually, I think for most of the of the um, kind of immune system uh, lineages, it plays a role in uh, terminal differentiation and activation of um, like uh, dendritic cells, macrophages, so on. And then uh, we discovered this role in T lymphocytes where, or it was Miriam Shapiro that started that work. She made the conditional lymphon mouse and uh, knocked it out in T lymphocytes. And there it plays a role in uh, the balance between TH1 and TH2 differentiation. And then there's a whole different aspect of lymphon role in embryology, where like in the adult, it tends to be like a, a factor that pushes cells towards terminal differentiation or activation in the immune system. But then in the uh, during embryonic development, it comes on and off. So it has this very dynamic expression. So it gets switched on and it uh, directs cell fate and then it gets switched on off again. So it it's kind of like this switch that gets used on and off to direct uh, lineage choices. So, so now you know went basically over your whole career in like tw two minutes. <laughs> Maybe we can unravel and the single uh, steps uh, a little bit in more detail. So the the, the publication I just um, mentioned before um, you introduced Blimborn was the one in 2006 where you you said that it has a role in B cells. And this was maybe the first time you uh, also looked at the role in T cell lineages and and how so what is the role or the yeah a more detailed role of uh, blimp one there? Yeah, so in this case in T helper cells, so so I have to say because this was during my PhD and I I was really like a co-author on this work and this was started by uh, Marion Sapiro and then mostly finalized by Gislaine um, um, Martins and Luisa Cimino, but I was kind of uh, helping them with his work. And and it's actually really interesting because um, um, there it's one of these uh, roles that it has in actually not driving terminal differentiation, but switching and balancing this decision. So when um, uh, T cells uh, or you know immune cells see antigen, they uh, need to decide what kind of response they need to uh, need to promote. So and um, and then T cells need to decide, uh, like CD4 T cells, they need to decide what type of helper T cell they need to be to uh, stimulate the correct response and correct uh, antibody class switching from B cells. So they need to decide whether they become Th1 or Th2. Um, Uh, T lymphocytes. And so in this case, we found that uh, if uh, we knocked out uh, blimp one in T cells, we would uh, accumulate um, uh, TH1 cells at the cost of TH2 cells. So, so basically, uh, it 
uh, it seems like blink one like attenuates a th1 response and it promotes a th2 differentiation uh, and since then it's been discovered uh, to have a role in um, cd8 t cells and in helper t in, in um, regulatory t cells as well but this and this was published back to back with um, uh, a paper from an Australian group that had very kind of similar uh, results um, in nature immunology. So, um, so yeah, it's really... Yeah, you also said that um, BLIMP1 has a role not only in immune cells, but also in many other cells. And the next uh, cell type you looked at were keratinocytes and in the differentiation of keratinocytes. Uh, so what did you find there about BLIMP1? Yeah, so that this was my kind of main PhD project. And if, I have to say it was really tough because I was in um, an immunology lab that had actually focused on B cells for a long time and was switching to T cells. And then uh, I actually started out looking at dendritic cells, but uh, I couldn't really see anything there. And probably also because I was so new, because then uh, Koei Lin has later shown um, what blimp one does in and dendritic cells, so, but we saw a skin phenotype. But I was really lucky. I had uh, the laboratory of Angela Cristiano on campus, and they taught me everything about skin biology. But so we basically did a conditional knockout using Miriam's mouse, uh, using keratin-14 to knock it out in epidermis, and uh, saw that the mice became like really like uh, itchy. So uh, poor things. It was and that made it actually a little bit harder even to do this project. But then um, after some analyses, so we found that BLIMP1 is expressed at the, at the topmost layer of the epidermis just before the cells die. And this is actually so interesting. And we really don't know enough about this process of how kind of the, this terminal differentiation ends with death. And then you have these kind of what we uh, call the keratinized layer or stratum corneum where or cornified layer where we just have this stack of dead cells that form a barrier at the top of the epidermis and we found that um there was um like during uh, development where when the barrier is forming it forms more slowly but it formed in the end and i actually have to say i still i'm not quite sure i know exactly why these um cells uh, or knockout of blimp one makes this uh, mice so sick but there also like seems to be um, a slowdown of um, terminal differentiation in the epidermis and it's actually very interesting because um, it can you do form the topmost layer but it becomes like way well, you form the topmost layer, like the granular layer, topmost layer of uh, live cells, and you do end up forming the dead layer, the cornified layer, but uh, you get these kind of very huge aberrant cells, the live cells, and they have these kind of uh, clumps of protein called filagrin, but then at some point, which is, has not been... Uh, visualized, but you just know you have these clumps and then all of a sudden it's just spread on the envelope of the cell called the cornified envelope and then the cells are dead somehow and if you look at a skin section there's no like gradient in between, you just have a live cell and then there's a stack of flat dead cells and when we knock out blimp one, these like 
clumps of filaggrin just get really, really, really huge. But then we also still don't see any intermediate step or anything. So it seems like the cell just can't decide to die uh, until like really late. So somehow it the uh, effect becomes very efficient because they do die in the end. Otherwise, the mice would have not been uh, viable. But but somehow we slowed down this differentiation process. But I still like, I don't know, I've never gone back to epidermis. And after this, I, I, I joined Azim's lab looking at uh, germ cells. But I still wonder, like, what is the exact molecular mechanism? And back then it was like 2005, six, I was working on it and we didn't have as good techniques to do mm -hmm. like chromatin IP cut and run. And so to really know maybe where blimp is binding in the skin. So it's still, I don't know. Uh, it was like a phenotype characterization and a little bit of molecular mechanism, but I'm not quite sure still exactly <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> And you then went back to investigate BLIM1 in T-cells yeah. again by repressing IL-2. Yeah. Uh, what did you find I, there? Well, so there we were looking more at the molecular mechanisms of uh, kind of how uh, BLIM1 um, kind of regulates this uh, cell, uh, this binary cell choice. And, and for example, um, Uh, one of the key uh, components in this uh, TH1-TH2 uh, differentiation is the balance between cytokines that are secreted uh, by the cell. So by suppressing IL-2, like BLIMP1 can um, attenuate um, a TH1 um, uh, cell fate decision. This was, uh, I'm not sure when exactly that was, but um, was that like the, the final thing you did on, on like uh, BLIMP1 and uh, the T-cells or the immune system? Or uh, is that something that you still yeah, investigate? Yeah, I mean, there were, so because uh, at that point I was actually, because I was uh, I was kind of the person in the lab doing chromatin IP. So I helped like Luisa Tomino and uh, uh, Ghislaine Martins like do their chromatin IPs. And that's how we find found that BLIMP1 like, binds to the interleukin uh, promoter. And then there was another paper where we showed that it can also um, uh, bind and repress TPAH, which is a transcription factor that uh, promotes TH2 differentiation. So um, so then, um, so th th those kind of two papers that came, kind of came after the first um, T-lymphocyte paper, those were kind of the last thing that I, um, and so this was kind of work that was ongoing when I was still with Catherine. And so they came out after I joined Azim's lab, but, but yeah, so that was the last thing okay. I did with these. Yeah. And I think that came out, and I think this is then your own lab, uh, because it was in 2020. <laughs> you looked at the BLIMP1 in non-Hodgkin non lymphoma. Uh, so what did you find there then? Yeah, so that's also kind of a long story. And um, there's a, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that is so fascinating called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And that's it's a rare lymphoma. Uh, and it's a rare disease. It's like one in a million people uh, annually get diagnosed with it. Um, in a way, uh, well, people thought in the beginning that it was a type of myeloma. And this stems from, actually, um, my interest in this stems from my years with Catherine and the lymphocytes um, and the B lymphocytes. So it's a B lymphocytic lymphoma. And what makes it so interesting to me, uh, because I'm, I'm a person that's interested in kind of how cells um, make 
binary, these binary decisions is that um, uh, they, the phenotype of this tumor in the bone marrow is always uh, described with the name lymphoplasmacytic. So, and that's the, if you Google the word lymphoplasmacytic, that's the only place you will ever see it used. It's uh, for uh, Waldenstein's microglobulinemia. It's a term exclusively used to describe that, um, that disease. So somehow when uh, B cells, so like it during normal um, differentiation of B cells, they uh, encounter antigen and they go uh, into what we call the germinal center reaction. And they get um, help from uh, T lymphocytes uh, to um, mutate their immunoglobulins. So that, uh, and that's called somatic hypermutation. And, and, uh, and this is like a random mutation of immunoglobulins where uh, then uh, the B cells that have, that so the B cells that decrease their affinity to their antigen, they just die after that. But and then the T cells help select the B cells that have a higher affinity for the antigen. So there's like a competition between the B cells. So they've mutated their uh, uh, their antigen receptor that is then going to become the antibody they secrete. And then uh, after they do this, the next step is switching their immunoglobulins. So then uh, they can uh, go from like, they start out with secreting uh, immunoglobulin M, which is this huge pentamer. Um, and then they switch to IgG, IgA, IgE, and so forth, depending on what kind of uh, response um, they need to kind of mount against the infection. And then, um, then after that, they get pushed towards becoming plasma cells, and then they just start uh, pumping out antibody. What happens in Waldenschrams is like it's people argue about um, how it um, is initiated, and that's one of the fascinating things because Waldenschrams tumors they are this lymphoplasmacytic cells, so they look a little bit like B cells and a little bit like plasma cells, and they have a range of phenotypes, uh, and they pump out immunoglobulin M. So, and then when you look at them even more closely, they have mutated their um, um, immunoglobulin receptor. So they have like somatic hypermutation, but no class switching. And this doesn't occur naturally or very rarely. I guess now people are uh, starting to see that we do have memory B cells that are IgM, but this is like uh, uh, the uh, kind of the exception. So now people argue whether this tumor stems from cells that have somehow uh, accidentally failed in the germinal center reaction and exited uh, too early and transformed uh, at that point, or whether it's uh, a memory B cell that is um, uh, like a, a memory B cell tumor. So and it's really interesting then also, like because the then the tumor grows and develops and, um, and is sitting in the bone marrow, similar to um, myeloma, and it just keeps pumping out immunoglobulin. And it's actually um, the majority of the symptoms is because of the immunoglobulin, because it's like a, um, um, a thousand KD molecule, and that can uh, clump up in, um, in capillaries and cause all sorts of um, problems and you, the blood becomes viscous because of it. So, but then just like thinking about this tumor, you have this kind of range of um, uh, like of, of phenotypes from B cells to plasma cells. 
And but the plasma cells are not just like full blown plasma cells, so they have like lower expression of lymph one than uh, <laughs> than like a full blown plasma cells, lower expression of lymph one than, for example, a myeloma. That's like um, a very like kind of that's like a plasma cell tumor, and uh, and 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 somehow, and we're not even completely sure which cell uh, is whether some of the intermediate cell are also producing immunoglobulin. And if, if we look at this, like three uh, Waldorf cell lines that exist, they, they uh, like if you look at a plasma cell, like a myeloma cell line, it will express like IRF4, blimp one and all the characteristic uh, plasma cell transcription factor. And they will have repressed like PAX5, BCL6 that are the B cell transcription factors. But what makes Waldorf so interesting is that it, they are expressing kind of mixture of this factor. So somehow this binary cell fate is somehow they can't execute it. So uh, so they have an identity crisis. And I guess it could be sad for a lot of tumors, but I think just this aspect of Waldeschrams is like really interesting. So, um, so and this is kind of an ongoing question that we like to ask in the lab, but, uh, and we haven't actually quite gotten to a a place where we can directly ask what the identity crisis is. But when I was in Azim's lab, uh, one of the things we discovered in um, in the germ cells is that, uh, of course, it was known before, but then we found that blimp bound to all these like somatic genes. It was known before that it repressed them. And it had a very similar binding pattern to polycom factors uh, in embryonic stem cells. And we actually did that work in embryonal carcinoma cells. So I had uh, been trying to pull down uh, polycom factors with blimp one and I was able to do it if I overexpress it. And I'm not really sure if I believe that result. I guess a lot of things interact when you overexpress them, right? But I was really interested in like whether, uh, whether blimp one uh, could interact with polycom. But at the time, and I guess a little bit still, it's just very hard to do any sort of kind of biochemical work in germ cells because, well, back then we actually didn't have a culture system at all and we just had mice and there's only 40 cells per mouse. And that's not a very uh, permissive system to do a co-IP in. And then, um, um, uh, so, and then, the culture system really came for germ cells really came at the end of my postdoc, but it's still a bit intractable. You, you seed cells out in 96 wells. It's really expensive. You need like a hundred fold more BMP4 than for like heart development. And, and so it's really not a system where, uh, where you will at least go in and do kind of first experiments and things like this. But then I became really interested in uh, Waldstrom's disease and it was, through some coincidences that I ended up with the cell lines and I had been interested in that disease for a very long time. So we just decided, oh, we have the cell line where we have all this, um, well, you know, we can just, you know, grow them in liters and let's see if there's anything going on. And then we knocked down uh, blimp one and we actually saw that um, blimp one was not like regulating enhancer of cells um, at the transcription level, but we saw that every time we knocked blimp one down, enhancer zest would uh, be degraded. Uh, we tried and tried and tried to do a co-IP, but I don't 
think they interact. But then we saw that the factors, when we did a chip-seq for them, that they bind to a very overlapping um, set of genes. So, so uh, and, and during the time we were working on this, there were several papers that came out that kind of showed that LYMP1 and enhancer assessed in just normal B cell development, they might act uh, together to uh, enhance uh, plasma cell fate. Um, and then what we saw is that when we knocked LYMP1 down, uh, we got this like hyperactivation of uh, a lot of the interferon response. And, and in a way, you, you might think this is just old news, like Tom Maniari saw this like in the first LYMP1 paper in like 92. But it's still just very interesting that you would repress this factor in this tumor and you'd get uh, this very kind of uh, aggressive interferon response and, and uh, you upregulate a lot of like immune receptors. Um, and, and then we saw a similar, but maybe a kind of not as a strong response for enhancer zest. And then we started thinking, well, uh, maybe... Um, uh, and this also kind of uh, has developed a little bit from a thinking about germ cells, like maybe one of the roles of blimp one is to repress all a lot of these um, kind of surface receptors and um, kind of signaling molecules on the surface of the cells to make the cells a little bit <laughs> invisible. And, um, um, and so then we thought, okay, maybe uh, these factors are uh, working together to help the tumor evade um, immune surveillance. And so we were able to do that in the end, that we, we were able to uh, get help and isolate natural killer cells from uh, human blood and to show that both BLIMP1 and enhancer um, uh, like like when they are uh, knocked down, um, they seem to um, enhance the recognition and of the um, NK cells. So, so the, you get increased killing of the cells, of kind of the tumor cells by NK cells if you don't have lymph one and you don't have enhancer cells. So, and this really because, and I just I'm just realizing it now when I come and because a lot of these ideas are kind of developed from my thinking about germ cells because uh, one of the ideas I, I had about germ cells, and I guess I've never really shown it directly, is that very early on in the embryo, you specify these primordial germ cells. And it's so crucial for the organism to um, for these germ cells to form. And they get set aside and they even leave the embryo during gastrulation and they can't. Uh, and you really, the embryo has to make sure that they're not receptive to all the signaling that promotes gastrulation, that promotes uh, um, specification into usually mesoderm or um, endoderm. So they, uh, they need to be shielded. And I've kind of thought that um, and from our chip seek in, uh, from uh, embryonal carcinoma cells, trying to figure out what lymph was um, doing during these early uh, embryonic stages. Uh, I think that lymph one is also kind of repressing a lot of sig signaling receptors to make sure kind of 
that uh, that the cells are not receptive to a lot of the signaling that's going on. And I think that really influenced also my thinking about the B cells because it's this role uh, in plasma cells because like a plasma cell can't really receive T cell help anymore. Its only role is to pump out um, antibody and it can't like make a new decision about what it's going to do. And, um, and you really just have to have this like uh, very uh, like one decision and you pump out antibody and you die. And so a, a plasma cell doesn't uh, has stops being responsive to uh, T cells. Uh, and that's very similar to kind of the thinking about uh, the germ cells stopping being receptive to signaling, at least for a while, uh, or at least the wrong type of signaling. Uh, and of course, a plasma cell isn't uh, non-receptive to an, all signals. It can still see interleukin-6 that keeps it alive. But then also, if you just think about it, these uh, surface molecules that make uh, B cells uh, responsive to T cells um, during development, they are also surface molecules that uh, make the immune uh, system see um, uh, tumors and kill them. So this was kind of like my idea that also in this tumor, but this is apparent, LIMP1 is somehow protecting uh, the tumor from being seen. Uh, by T cells. But of course, we've only made a little stab at answering uh, that question. So what are you working on then right now? And what is maybe the plan for the next five years? Is it like germ cells or is it a more immune system? So I, it sounds crazy because I have this tiny group here at the University of Iceland, but uh, I we're st still working on germ cells, but we're also uh, looking at, uh, at Waldenstrom. So I hope to be able to do a project where we can look at like, because nobody's looked at the epigenetics of um, germ cells. So uh, no, of, of Waldenstrom cells, sorry. Now I, I, I misspoke, but uh, so people have been really interested in signaling in Waldenstrom's disease and understandably so, because uh, people have been actually able to develop very effective effective therapies, but it's still like the epigenetics is a completely black box. Uh, so we know kind of which signaling uh, molecules like uh, interleukin-2 and, um, and toll-like receptors, how they uh, are important, but we don't really uh, know what happens uh, after that. We don't know a lot about the transcription factors and we don't know about the, the enhancers and we don't know about kind of also like what this phenotype is like what the range is and so we're really just starting very in a basic way with um, um, uh, cell lines that are a little bit heterogeneous to start looking at this and I'm hoping actually like I don't have funding for this yet but I'm hoping to actually be able to get funding to characterize a little bit more the epigenetics of the disease um, and um, and then we also we're continuing our work on blink one because Uh, it uh, it looks like it's affecting uh, proliferation and survival uh, in the disease. So that's another project we have. But then we actually have, in this tiny group, we then have a, a germ cell arm, <laughs> which is like me and a graduate student. And we're, we're looking at, uh, at primordial germ cells as well. So 
Yeah, it sounds sounds very interesting. And fingers crossed that you get get the funding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one: Did you at one point of your career face the situation that you reached a dead end, or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah. So of course, I I feel like that's just um, normal in science, right? If 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 you don't reach that end and And if you always feel like you know what you're doing, maybe you're not challenging yourself enough, right? I I, th I had actually a, a pretty hard time just in in my PhD, just trying to get like chair to work, and and I I ended up being a little bit uh, desperate back then uh, because I just uh, it was just this very intractable system where we couldn't really do chair for blink one from mouse epidermis because there were such few cells we got and. Uh, but in the end, I ended up getting help from very good people and we got it to work. But like I had this one year where <laughs> where we had this very kind of, uh, I wasn't really sure if anything would ever work. But I guess a lot of people have kind of this time during their PhD. They're not really actually sure, uh, you know, what their future is <laughs> going to be. <laughs> but then, yeah, I mean, I but I don't think there's any like kind of, big things but um and i think i'm just also learning more and more to be flexible because you know you always reach roadblocks and then you have to either attack them or go around them somehow so yeah so in the last roughly 40 minutes we have taken a journey through your scientific career can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview yeah well <clears throat> i think Like um, I think what we didn't really talk about was um, the germ cells, and I think what uh, what's like one of the most interesting findings is that, um, it, and it was uh, kind of a, a, a surprising finding was that, or maybe not a surprising finding, but it was kind of interesting how we started out with just looking at blimp one in uh, germ cells and trying to find the molecular mechanism. And then it was just so beautiful how like one step led to another just through like sequence analysis and uh, actually and um, uh, that we actually ended up realizing that the three factors that had been knocked out before and shown to uh, facilitate germ cell um, um, specification like Uh, Pierding 14, Blimp 1, and AP2 Gamma somehow were all collaborating in this uh, network together. And it sounds maybe obvious after the fact, but these three factors, we can just overexpress them. And back then, uh, it was just right after people started doing iPS cells, and we can overexpress these three factors together in um, uh, uh stem cells, and then cells become. Um, germ cells. And it was really interesting because Mitnorisaitu's lab made the discovery at the same time and arrived at it at like a completely different uh, by a completely different method. So I think that's really kind of the only thing we haven't really discussed. So um, coming maybe a last question to Blimp1. Um, you said that it can be an activator and it can be a repressor. So how would it decide to be one or the other? That's the million dollar question, right? And that's like, uh, and this is something I really just don't, um, I, as conceptually, I find it very hard because of course it's decided based on which protein it interacts with, right? So if it brings a co-activator, it will activate a gene. And if it 
brings a repressor, it will repress a gene. And a lot of transcription factors do that. We know OCK4 does this, for example. But how it decides on which gene it it's associated with a certain factor, I I just I have no idea really. And maybe it's based on what else is bound there, what else is brought locally. Maybe it's the phase separation thing, right? What's present locally mm-hmm. in, in you know in the you know that it's in i don't know okay uh, i think that's a good point to end this interview thank you anna for your time and for being on this show yeah thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the epigenetics podcast from active motif we hope you enjoyed it you can find all the mentioned references in the show notes please rate review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.